0: You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Morning, Open Door. Thank you very much. It has been uh, a while since I've been up here preaching. That was partly because I was teaching an adult class for more than two months, but so as if to make up for that prolonged absence, uh, they've asked me to preach for three Sundays in a row. (laughs) Perhaps I should have mentioned that, some of you are probably saying, well, I know where I won't be the next couple of weeks, but anyway, uh, I hope you're not saying that because um, I think that God has given me the opportunity to talk about some pretty important things today and for the following two Sundays. Today's message is entitled, Living a Good and Peaceful Life. That's something that uh, all of us aspire to, I think, at least at times, and Paul is going to tell us this morning how to do that. As usual, there's an outline of the message in your bulletin with blanks to be filled in, also on the app if you have that. And also, as usual, I'm going to ask that we all stand together and read aloud this morning's passage of Scripture together. So let's stand and read aloud together. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge beloved but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for these words today, as hard as they are for us sometimes. We know that they reveal something of your character and your heart. So we ask, dear God, this morning that you would bring them home to our hearts and to our minds, that we would think your thoughts after you as we look at these words of exhortation and instruction from the Apostle Paul. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. My thesis this morning is pretty straightforward. We cannot control the evil people may do to us, but we can repay evil with good and thus live a peaceful and grace-filled life. We cannot control the evil people may do to us, but we can repay evil with good and thus live a peaceful and grace-filled life. It's worthwhile to remind ourselves here that Paul was writing to the church at Rome, a church that he had never visited yet, although he hoped to do so on his way to Spain. He is on his third missionary journey, and he's writing probably around 56 to 57 A.D., and probably from Corinth. He has, in his journeys, encountered much opposition including being stoned and left for dead at Lystra on his first missionary journey, being beaten at Philippi in his second missionary journey, having been plotted against more than once by men who wanted him dead. And in the face of that, he writes what we read in Romans 12, 17 through 21. And the first thing he says very flatly, very plainly, is that repaying evil for evil isn't in my job description. Now, I want to take a moment and talk about that phrase in my job description because you may well, so well say, well, Paul doesn't really say anything here about a job, and let alone a job description, and you would be correct in saying that. He does, however, talk a lot in this entire chapter and the ones that follow about how we are to conduct our day-to-day lives in this world. So if you feel more comfortable saying, you know, instructions for life in the place of job description, then go right ahead, knock yourself out. Uh, in John 13, verses 34 and 35, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus was very clear when he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So not only does he give us this new commandment, and notice it's not a suggestion, it's a a commandment, um, that we love one another, but he also indicates that by doing this, everyone will know that we are followers of him. Learners at his feet, if you will. And that in that process, they will see us as that. The implication is pretty clear, then, that at least part of the reason that we are to love one another is so that all men will know that we are his disciples. So his aim is not only that we should love one another, but that by doing so, we would declare openly to the entire world that we are his. And both of those, interestingly enough, that loving one another and that by doing that, We show the world who we belong to. Those are both outwardly focused, aren't they? Isn't that interesting? So, the first part of a job description is a job title. We all have titles in the jobs that we have. And ours, you can take your choice. You can say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. You know, some other phrase that means something to you, but that's that's the job title. That's who we are, right? The second thing is the description notice he said that i what i've written up here is that we trust the father be like the son in the power of the spirit in that commandment we just read he says love one another even as i have loved you well i simply cannot do that unless i trust that the father has my back that he is looking out for my best interests as I am looking out for the best interests of those around me. And in order to do this, I have to believe who he says I am in Christ. And I have to rely upon the supernatural power of the indwelling Spirit of God, don't I? Now, the fact is I can't think of anything that the New Testament commands or instructs me to do as a Christ follower that doesn't fall within this this definition, this description. Can you? Can you? If you do, please let me know, you know, between services or something, and I'll throw something in there about that for second service. A couple chapters later, no, I'm sorry, I'm I'm in the wrong place here. In Romans chapter 8, we're all familiar with these verses, but we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is what God is doing in us. He's making us like Jesus. So I think I'm pretty good ground, on pretty good ground when I say that our job description is to be like Jesus. In fact, I think that's, you can even capsulize the whole thing in that phrase that it may be hard to see in red, be like the Son. Be like the Son. That's because Jesus absolutely trusted the Father, didn't He? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that. He submitted Himself to the will of the Father because He trusted Him. And by, by submitting himself to the will of the Father, he did everything that he did not on his own power, not on his own volition, but upon, by dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, didn't he? So in a way, the whole of the definition, the whole of the description could be to be like Jesus. Now, shortly after that section that we just read in John 13, Jesus says this. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because I I have called you friends for all the things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you, and you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is my commandment that you love one another. So it's Jesus' desire then, not only that we become like him, but then, therefore, in, as we go and we live that life that he's given us, and we bear fruit in each other's lives, we bring people to Christ, whatever it is, that whatever that fruit is in our lives, it goes on forever. So the idea that the time frame of this is time and eternity is really true, isn't it? That my, my striving, my working as a Christian in this life produces fruit that goes on forever. Isn't that interesting? We spend so much time and so much effort worrying about things that are going to burn up, don't we? (laughs) They're going to be gone someday and no one will care, really, when they are. And so little time thinking about dealing with the things that remain, that will remain forever. So, as to the skills that we need to do this job we've been given. What I wrote here is trusting the reality of Christ in me, living out that reality by loving those around me, even my enemies, by meeting their needs. See, here's the thing. We read this and we're tempted to say, I I can't do that. I, don't, I can't do that. But the truth is, we can do it. Because he's already given us everything we need to live this life. If you had trusted Christ with your eternal salvation, he has already given you the ability to do this. In fact, he tells us that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Grace and power be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Notice that that little phrase, has granted, it's a single verb in Greek, and it's the verb, it's the verb, which means to bestow upon, to make as a present. It comes from the word doron, which is a present, a gift. And He's saying, Not only is this given bestowed upon us as a gift, but it's in the perfect tense, and that means that it's something that occurred in the past when we trusted Him, but it has continuing results. The results of His having given us everything pertaining to life and godliness still remain. So we do have everything we need to do the job don't we? So, as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, I have to trust the reality of Christ in me, living out that reality by loving those around me, even my enemies, by meeting their needs. So those are the rights and responsibilities of the job. Now, back to the outline. So, repaying evil for evil isn't in my job description. I'm never to repay evil for evil. to anyone. Paul's very plain, very straightforward when he says that, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You see, it's just not my job to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't defend myself or my family or other innocent people. So in a sense, we have to pay close attention to both our actions and our motives. It's also worth remembering that I can protect someone else by putting myself between them and the harm, can't I? Oh, yes, well, I can do that. (laughs) So we have to think about this carefully. We have to actually pay attention to it. But I'm never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. There has been in our culture for a long time a very popular meme, even before they called it a meme, it was a meme. um, What would Jesus do, right? We've all heard that. We've probably said it. But I think there's a better question. Rather than asking ourselves, what would Jesus do, let's ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? Now there's a reason why I think that's a better question, because if I ask what would Jesus do, I can very easily rationalize any action I may want to take, can't I? I can say to myself, yes. I can see Jesus ramming his car into the side of that idiot who just cut me off in traffic. Or, yes, Jesus would pull out his nine Beretta 9 mil and off that woman who took that parking place right in front of the door at Walmart instead of my getting it. See, I can do that because the human mind is capable of infinite rationalization, isn't it? I can always rationalize what I want to do. It's a little harder To look at what Jesus actually did. So, let's think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. When they come to arrest Jesus. With the guards and the torches and the spears and all of that. It says, behold, one of those who who were with Jesus. Spoiler alert, John rats out and tells us that it was Peter that did this. But anyway, Matthew says, uh, behold, one of those who were with Jesus pulls out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Wow. You know, you read that and you think, that's interesting. A legion was a different number of soldiers at different times in the history of the Roman Empire. At the time of Jesus, a legion comprised 5,000 men, 5,000 soldiers. So what Jesus is saying is that if he asked, the Father would send 60,000 angels to rescue him, if that's what he wanted. I don't know if you recall it or not, but In 729 BC, during the reign of King Hezekiah, the southern kingdom of Judah, Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, ruler, dictator, whatever you want to call him, invaded and was going to descend upon Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed and Isaiah was involved in it. And it tells us in 2 Kings 19 that God sent an angel, an angel to the camp of the Assyrians and in one night he killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel did that. So I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, that 60,000 angels could have protected Jesus and rescued him from crucifixion had he asked for it. But he did not. In fact, when he was on the cross, Suddenly this thing is not working anymore. It just died. The battery went dead on me. So I'll have to ask you to thank you. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they cast lots dividing up his garments among themselves. The men who nailed Jesus to that cross, as people were spitting and jeering at him, As he hung there, stripped of all his dignity as well as all of his clothing, as he suffered thirst and incredible pain, some of it just from the act of breathing in that position, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And of course, this incredibly selfless act obviously had a profound effect on the soldiers because they divided up his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Still, that is what Jesus did in that situation. These men were committing the most heinous, the most unjust act in the history of the world. Surely, if anyone deserved vengeance and immediate vengeance, it was they. But instead of wreaking vengeance upon them, Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. It was, after all, Jesus who told us in Luke's Gospel back in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you who, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you and apparently Jesus' followers got the memo because in the book of Acts if we would have the next slide please when Stephen the first Christian martyr recorded in the book of Acts was being stoned it tells us this when they had driven him out of the city they began stoning him and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, so just bear that in mind. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. That doesn't mean he took a nap. It means he died, physically died. So, next slide, please. If I repay evil for evil, Paul says it doesn't represent, it doesn't honor that which is good and beautiful. <clears throat> now, the NASB translates that as respect what is right in sight of all men. But the word translated respect, prano e'o, really literally means to give forethought to. To think about beforehand, to plan for something, if you will. And then he says that this thing that you're planning for is what is good, what is beautiful. The word is kalos in Greek, and it it really means both good and beautiful depending on the context. In fact, in modern Greek, if you greet a Greek in Greece, that's funny, isn't it? If you greet a Greek in Greece today, you would say to him kalimera, which means good. Kale is the feminine form. Himera is the word for day. So you're wishing him a good day, a beautiful day, or you're saying it is a good day or a beautiful day. That's this word. And Paul says there are things that everybody knows are good and beautiful and right and honorable, and when we repay evil for evil, we're not showing them that. So repaying evil with evil is simply not good, right, beautiful, or honorable. In other words, it is not Christ-like. We're going to come back to that idea again in a, in a couple of verses. Next slide, please. The, the next major point in the outline is that being at peace with all people insofar as it depends upon me is in my job description. So the next slide, please, says we cannot stop what people do to us so Paul qualifies this when he says live at peace with all men he he gives us a couple of qualifications for it number one if it's possible we simply can't stop the ill will that people may have for us sometimes that ill will is because we are Christians so I can't stop that what I can do is keep from returning the hatred And that's just what he told us in the previous verse, isn't it? Returning uh, good for evil rather than evil for evil. The next point under this is that some will refuse to be at peace with me. So I can be at peace with them, but they're not at peace with me. I'd like to think of this in terms of an illustration. If you've ever been in a hotel or a motel that has adjoining rooms, there's a door between those two rooms. It's actually a double door, isn't it? because there's a doorknob on my side, so I can open the door, but there's still their door, isn't there? And they have to open it from their side. So insofar as it depends on me, I can leave my door open to a peaceful, harmonious relationship. But I can't open their door. When I find myself at odds with someone that is not at peace with him, I must make sure that he knows that my door is open. That any time he wants to, he can open his and we can have a relationship. We can have a dialogue. So, next slide. Major point in the outline. Taking vengeance is the Lord's job. (laughs) I really want this job, I don't know about you. There are times when I really want this job, but it's not in my job description. See the truth is God is the only one who has all the facts, isn't he, in the first place. He's the only one who really knows what was happening on both sides of it. He can read that person's heart and mind. he can read mine. So I have to leave it to him to deal out justice. I have to because I don't have the wherewithal to do so. So, the next point under that is that I am not God's minister for righteousness in this case. Now, next week, when we get to the thing about government in chapter 13, we're going to see that sometimes the government is designed by God to be a minister of righteousness with respect to dealing with evildoers. But it's not my job. It is not my responsibility. The next point, next slide, please. God will settle the score in his time. Now, let's consider for just a moment that situation we were previously talking about when Stephen was stoned. Had Stephen found and used a way to take his vengeance at that moment, at the moment of that offense, then the salvation of Saul of Tarsus, later known as the Apostle Paul, would not have occurred. Ever think about that? You see, Saul was in complete agreement with what these people were doing. He was holding the coats for the people who were stoning Stephen. It was not till later in his story that he was confronted on the road to Damascus with a vision of Jesus Christ. Now, we might be tempted to say that The vengeance that should have fallen on Saul was never taken. But that would be wrong. The fact is it was taken on Christ at Calvary. The righteous wrath of God for every sin ever committed by any person at any point of time landed upon Jesus as he hung on that cross. He satisfied the wrath of God for sin. 1 John 2 2 tells us that. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So So we see when this verse says that never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, it is saying that God may, for this particular person who has wronged me, he may bring him to repentance rather than wrath. How could I begrudge him that mercy and grace which was previously shown to me? And even if he doesn't bring that person to repentance, it is still God's business, not mine, because the sin was first and foremost against God, and that's why vengeance belongs to him. I'm just not qualified to take it. Even in Revelation chapter 6, if you remember the context, there, there's this scroll with seven seals on it that in chapter 5, there's a big law about because they couldn't find anybody who was worthy to open the book. And then, of course, the lamb who was slain is deemed worthy to open that book because he redeemed. So he's given the book. He starts to break the seals. When he comes to the fifth seal, it says, "When "'When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, "'I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain "'because of the word of God "'and because of the testimony which they had maintained. "'And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, "'How long, O Lord, holy and true, "'will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood "'on those who dwell on the earth?' "'And there was given to each of them a white robe. "'They were told that they should rest for a little while longer.' until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Think about that. These people, and they're doing, they're doing it right. They aren't saying, we're going to take vengeance. They're saying, God, we want you to deal with this thing righteously. And God says, I will, but it's not time. Because there are still some of those very people who martyred you are going to come to faith in me and probably will themselves then be martyred. Oh. (laughs) Oh. So vengeance belongs to God, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Next slide please. The fourth major point in the outline is that ministering to the needs of my enemy is in my job description. And again, that's exactly what Christ did, isn't it? Next slide. When I, when I serve the needs of my enemy, I'm leaving room for God to work. Because God's will always includes timing. And so when God finally does wreak judgment upon the whole earth, it's exactly at the right time in His plan. As we noted above, loving my enemy is not about who he may be, it is rather about who I am. And Paul here does an interesting thing. He quotes from Proverbs 25. If we could see the next slide, please. Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now... This is a puzzling verse, not only here where it occurs, but also in Proverbs 25. And there are at least two reasons why it's puzzling for us. Number one is because it appears that the Lord is encouraging us to treat our enemies with love because of a potential benefit, not only to us, but to them as well. And secondly, then how is it burning, heaping gold, burning coals of fire a benefit to this guy? Um, and of the proliferation of opinions on this, there is no end. Uh, For example, I'll give you a couple examples. The pulpit commentary says, this expression has been taken in various senses. It has been thought to mean that the forgiveness of the injured person brings to the cheek of the offender the burning blush of shame, but heaping coals on the head cannot naturally be taken to express such an idea. Of course, in one view, Kindness to an evil man only gives him occasion for fresh ingratitude and hatred and therefore increases God's wrath against him. But it would be a wicked motive to act this beneficent part only to have the satisfaction of seeing your injurer humbled and punished. John Gill, the famous Puritan preacher, said this, For you shall heap coals of fire upon his head, not to increase his judgment and damnation. The more aggravated by kindness shown him, but to bring him by such means to a sense of former injuries and to, shame, and to shame for them, repentance of them and love of the person injured and carefulness for the future of doing any further wrong. The Bible, comment, Bible Knowledge Commentary says sometimes a person's fire went out and he needed to borrow some live coals to restart his fire. Giving a person coals in a pan to carry home on his head was a neighborly kind act. It made friends, not enemies. Proverbs 25, instructs us to give our enemies so many burning coals that they have to carry them the way burdens are carried in the Middle East, in a container on the head, that they may go back and immediately bake their bread without having to wait for the wood to become suitable coals for cooking. Now, whichever one of those ideas or others you want to choose, knock yourself out, but I'm pretty sure that what Paul is not saying here is that doing this will result in your enemy, enemy being burned alive from the hair of his head down to the toes. I'm pretty sure that's not what he's saying because he follows it up by saying that doing this overcomes evil with good. Right? So, next slide, please. In the final analysis... This is how I can overcome evil with good. When I reach out and minister to the needs of my enemy, when I put his interests ahead of my own, I am leaving room for God to work, and I am overcoming his desired evil against me with Christ's desired good. Again, the question presents itself. What did Jesus do? He prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. He died in the place of his enemies in order to bring them to God as sons. Right? So, back to our thesis. Next slide, please. We cannot control the evil that people may do to us, but we can repay evil with good and thus live a peaceful and grace-filled life. That's what Paul's telling us to do. He's telling us, in short, to be like Jesus, which sounds like a pretty good idea to me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, these are hard things. They're not hard to understand. They're just hard to take because we want to be in control. We want to take vengeance. We want to Bring it back on the head of someone who's given us something evil, something hard. God, help us to learn to trust you. Help us to be willing to give place for your grace as well as your righteousness to work. Because we know that's how we need to live in this present evil world. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.